Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. Friendly reminder that this discussion is general and educational in nature and does not constitute tax, investment, legal, or financial advice with respect to any particular individual or taxpayer. Please consult your own advisors regarding your own unique situation. A month ago, I went to Instagram and asked, what money topics would you want to learn more about? To my utter surprise, taxes had the most votes. I figured side hustles, investing, even budgeting would attract more attention. But maybe I failed to realize the desire you had to learn and feel more confident about this perplexing topic. I went looking for a guest that had a deep understanding in this field, but could also explain terminology and foundational concepts in a simplistic, engaging way. In my experience, this isn't the traditional profile of a tax professional, but my guest today will deliver on that promise. Sean Mullaney is the president of Mullaney Financial and Tax, where he provides financial planning services to individuals and families. His credentials include a bachelor's in accounting from Georgetown University, a certificate in financial planning, a law degree, a CPA designation, and spending the last 20 years working with corporate or individual taxes, which includes stops at Deloitte, PwC, the IRS, and now his own practice. Sean is a glorified tax nerd in the best way possible. Since he apparently can't get enough of tax, he also created a blog, fitaxguy.com, where he writes about the intersection of tax and financial independence. This episode will include both breadth and depth of a myriad of topics related to taxes, including tax brackets, standard versus itemized deductions, retirement accounts, and more. I hope you enjoy this episode with the 20-year vet, soon-to-be author, and the FI tax guy himself, Sean Mullaney. Hey, Sean, welcome to the podcast. Justin, thanks so much. Really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. Um, so you're the tax guy. How did <laughs> how did this all start? Because um, from my understanding, you were in big five accounting firm, uh, came out of college. That was kind of the plan. I think you always had a little bit interest in personal finance, but your you know career kind of dovetailed into corporate, um, and eventually turned around and you opened up your own individual practice, and now you're helping individuals around their tax goals. Is this correct? That's basically right. So I am a career changer, right? So my first career was mostly in corporate taxation. Um, I worked for big four accounting firms. I worked for the Internal Revenue Service, but I always had a, sort of had in the back of my mind this itch around personal finance and individuals and their financial planning. And so, you know, I, I explored that and ultimately decided, yeah, I'm going to make a career change. I'm going to shift to being a financial planner and open up my own investment or registered investment advisor firm. And that's what I'm doing now. I work with individuals on their personal finance goals. I like to say I'm a tax focused financial planner. So that is very much, um, where I sort of spend a lot of my time, certainly not all of my time, uh, but it's it's a natural interest for me. I've been interested in tax for two decades now. And as part of having my registered investment advisor firm, it makes sense for me to do some writing, right? So I use the fitaxguy.com blog as a way to, you know, usually on a monthly basis, it can vary, 
But what I do is I write on topics that focus on the intersection of tax and financial independence. Some blog posts might be a little more financial independence focused. Some blog posts might be a little more tax focused. Uh, the ideal blog post sort of hits both buckets, right? Where does tax planning come into the lives of those pursuing financial independence in some form? And I, I broadly define financial independence. We can talk about that a little bit more if that's of interest to the audience as well. Yeah, the audience is is pretty aware. We've I've probably talked about it on at least half a dozen episodes now about FI about fire and and FI in general. Um, so most people that are listening are, are interested in it, maybe not practicing it, but definitely interested in in what it can do. Um, prior to that career change, how much knowledge did you have around personal tax? I mean, if you're spending all that time in corporate tax, how did you get up to speed to help individuals? Great question, Justin. It's a combination of things. Right. Some of it is literally my own personal affairs and managing my own tax situation. A lot of it was independent reading and research. Right. I remember when I was working at a big four firm, I would get the Wall Street Journal weekend edition and I would scour the individual section of that. There was an actual section, you know, in paper copy back then. Um, so some of it was just a lot of reading, a lot of scouring. I did a certificate program in personal financial planning. Um, and now it's just working with clients, right? And writing there too, right? So I mentioned my blog. Part of the reason you do a blog is to learn, right? So some things maybe you just know a lot about. Other topics, maybe you know something about. But then as part of your writing process, you need to do the research to get more knowledgeable about it, right? And then the other thing I'll say is every professional should always be learning, right? Meaning, uh, there's really few, if any, professions where the learning stops. And so I'm learning now and, you know, assuming I'm going to be in this business 10 years from now, hopefully in 10 years, I will still be learning. Um, so that need, you know, that gives us a little bit of humility, meaning, yeah, tomorrow, hopefully I will be better than I am today, but all I can do today is do my best. Yeah, Totally. Um, and you kind of have to always be learning because laws are changing all the time. There are new things that are coming up um, from outside perspective. Uh, as, a, as a tax geek, it seemed like you were really enjoying the stimulus piece to it. You wrote a lot about the stimulus checks and, and specific tax information around it. Uh, is that true? Were you kind of having a heyday there for a year, kind of dissecting and diving into everything? So when coronavirus first happened, I was very interested in the stimulus checks just because it was a timely tax issue, right? Uh, but from there, it became more of a tax planning issue. And what I mean by that is the way the stimulus checks worked, and there were three separate rounds of them, is it was based on a taxpayer's so-called adjusted gross income. And part of tax planning is this idea of managing adjusted gross income, meaning, um, we all, or I'm guessing most of the audience probably has a job or jobs and they're going to take money in and that's going to be taxable income to them. But there are things through say health savings accounts, retirement account planning. There are things that you can do to, where it says, Oh, you know, I made a hundred thousand this year, but because of these contributions to maybe tax favored accounts or other planning I've done, Maybe my adjusted gross income isn't 100,000. Maybe it's all the way down to 70,000. And if I can do that very legal, right, 
tax planning that the government has set up for us through things like health savings accounts, through things like 401ks, traditional IRAs, solo 401ks. If I qualify to do that planning and I need to qualify, right? But if I do, maybe I could manage my taxable income, get a tax deduction, which is great, but also flip the switch on to now qualify for one or more of these stimulus payments where maybe before I didn't, or maybe before I only qualified for a partial payment. So that was, you know, sort of this unique one-time opportunity that because it was new, nobody had written about. So it was a natural topic for my blog to spend some time on because nobody else, you know, it's not like, oh, there's 20,000 other articles out there on this. There just couldn't have been. So I thought about ways you could do some tax planning and enhance the stimulus check you might get. Mm. Interesting. Um, and you've opened up already some kind of tax 101 with AGI or adjusted gross income. Let's take a step backwards. Let's let's just assume that the average listener is probably going to have a W-2 job, maybe somewhere in like the 50 to 60 grand mark. Um, Great. They get this pay, they get a paycheck and in their paycheck, there's this list of deductions, um, taking out some of the health, healthcare deductions. What are those other things, those other line items there that are referenced as taxes? Justin, great question. They're probably going to be anywhere between two to four, right? So you live in the great state of Texas, right? I'm not a, a Texas tax expert by any means, but what I would anticipate your paycheck, if you have a W-2 paycheck and it says fifty dollars to $60,000 in, in terms of total gross income, you're going to see two things on there. One is federal income tax withholding, right? So you have to, through the withholding process, have some income tax withheld from your income every pay period. All right. So and, you're going to and see is that, that. Is that this whole, I know at the beginning you have to select like write down the zero or the one or the two. <laughs> I get some questions on this sometimes and people don't know what, what to write down there. Is that That's exactly to this? what this is. This is a form called the W-4 form. And the IRS actually has, to my knowledge, probably the best calculator out there. The form is somewhat confusing. Not going to lie, right? This is not an easy peasy here's your number to put on that form. But what you can do is you can go to the IRS website and probably Google actually a W4 calculator IRS. And they have a mechanism for you to sort of put in where your income is thus far this year. How much of this withholding that we talked about have you had so far and how much other income do you anticipate having this year? And it will spit out some numbers that you could put on the W4 form. Sometimes it's a little bit of trial and error. Um, you want to make sure you're not having too much withheld, but you also want to make sure you're having enough withheld, right? Um, theoretically, the goal is maybe a zero refund or payment due when you file your tax return early the next year. It's not the end of the world to owe the IRS a little bit of money. It's not the end of the world to get a refund from the IRS, but you generally want to do some planning to avoid the extremes, right? We don't want a huge refund because that's an interest-free loan to the government. There are other reasons you don't want that. And you also don't want to owe the government a ton of money in most cases. Not all, but most cases you don't uh, because of the potential for penalties, interest, these sorts of things. We generally want um, either zero in terms of refund or uh, payment due or small refund, small payment due. Okay. So that's the W-4. The W-4 is what determines how much federal income tax you're going to have with help. 
and you live in Texas, the second thing is going to be um, something called FICA tax. And this is going to be below 100, I believe the number is 142,800 in the year 2021. Below that number, 7.65% of every paycheck you get is going to go to something called FICA. And that's the government term for the combination of Social Security and Medicare, right? Of the, you know, if we were to divide that 7.65%, uh, 6.2% goes to Social Security, 1.45% goes to Medicare. They call that a payroll tax. You're just subject to that, unfortunately. There's not a ton of planning we could do to reduce that. There is one opportunity for your W-2 worker, something called the health savings account. We'll talk about that later. That can actually reduce that. Um, and unfortunately, that's not an income tax deduction. So in your example, Justin, you make 50000 know, in a W-2 job, and then they take 7.65% of that out as FICA tax, which is going to be 3000 and change, uh, maybe close to about 3,800 bucks. Um, don't rely on my math, pull out <laughs> your own calculator. That's my mental math, right? So that 3,800 is payroll tax you pay. Um, it is not an income tax deduction for you. So when you go to file your tax return, you're gonna report 50,000 as W-2 wages. One good thing about that social security is that's building up social security earnings for you. So later in life, you know, when social security comes due to you, it will record that you had 50,000 of earnings that year. And so it will generate social security checks later in life uh, based on that 50,000 and then your other uh, years of income as well. Hmm. So there is a benefit there. It's a delayed benefit. Okay, makes sense. And then anything else you mentioned two to four, what are, what are yeah, the other so two, two to four? So let's now shift from the great state of Texas to the great state of California where I live. So uh, when you look at uh, a pay a W-2 or a pay stub for somebody like me who lives in California, there are going to be two other elements, right? One is going to be state income tax, right? Most states have a state income tax. Texas does not. California does. So they're going to withhold state income tax in addition to federal income tax. Now, depending on your tax situation, you might actually be able to take a federal tax deduction for that state income tax, Um most people actually wind up not doing that because they don't itemize their deductions, but some people do about one in 10 people get some benefit for that. And then the other thing would be state payroll tax. I actually have no idea what Texas does. California does have a state payroll tax on most employees of about 1%. Um, and I believe that covers uh, state is that unemployment? That's disability, I believe. Okay. I'd have to double check that. Don't quote me. But for most employees, 1% of your pay, of your paycheck, every period in California is going to come out in state payroll tax. Other states are different ways. Um, I'm not the person to ask about the other 49 states. I barely <laughs> know the California payroll tax rules. There's so many rules. You can only know so many of them. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that's what you're going to be looking at if you're a W-2 worker federal income tax withholding, state income tax withholding, and then federal FICA payroll tax, and then any state payroll tax. Okay. Totally makes sense. I'm glad we broke that down. Um, what about tax brackets now? And I've heard the, the term progressive tax system. What in relative terms does that mean? 
what that means is generally speaking, the more money you earn, the higher the income tax rate on the last dollar you earn. So let's start with the payroll tax. The payroll tax is not progressive, right? It's generally speaking a flat tax uh, up to 142,800, right? That's just a flat rate. Every dollar is subject to the 7.65% tax rate. But for income tax, what the system sort of acknowledges is if I'm a famous basketball player and I'm making millions of dollars, I probably can afford in a general sense to pay more on the last uh, dollar I, I earn. So they have these things called tax brackets. That's the way this thing is implemented. If you remember from high school math, it's sort of a step function, right? So you get a standard deduction or your itemized deductions against the, you know, the very first dollars you earn. So you effectively pay a 0% income tax rate on those dollars. And then once you get beyond your standard deduction, your itemized deductions, most people, it's going to be the standard deduction, by the way. Um, you then start paying based on tax brackets. So the first, I believe it might be 19,000 and change this year for a single individual is subject to a 10% rate. And I'd have to double check that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next amount is subject to a 12%. And then once you exceed that income amount, the next amount is subject to 22%. And then the next bracket is subject to 24% and then 32%, 35%, 37%. Um, you can Google these, right? So just uh, go on to a search engine and search um, federal tax brackets, and it'll come up with single married filing joint. Generally speaking, the married filing joint taxpayers have double the tax bracket, right? So if a tax bracket is $20,000 $20, worth of income for a single individual, it's likely going to be something like 40000 for a married filing joint uh, couple. So that's how that works. Um, the idea is, you know, as you make more, your, your earnings are going to be subject to a higher and higher tax rate. Okay. And if I reflect this back to you, just so I have this understood, if I'm making $50,000 and I'm in the tax bracket of 24%, I think you said, um, I'm not paying 24% on all $50,000. That's absolutely right. I'm actually, I just... I just took my own advice and Googled it, right? <laughs> so what, what you're going to find, um, and I misspoke before for a single person, it's about, it's a little under 10,000 subject to that first 10%. So let, let's break it down, right, Justin? So you make 50,000 and that's your quote unquote adjusted gross income. Mm -hmm. The first 12,500 will be just taken care of with the so-called standard deduction. And, okay. and can you talk on, I don't want to spend too much yep. time on that, but because I'm assuming most people that are listening are, are taking the standard deduction, but yes. standard versus itemized, um, what yep. are the two and, and, and what can be itemized? Yeah. So you have an election to make every year when you file your tax return. It's to either claim the standard deduction or to claim itemized deductions. And generally speaking, what you do is you say, which number is bigger, right? Because I want more deductions. Um, and for 90% of Americans right now, give or take, the answer is the standard deduction is greater. Not everybody, but most people, the standard deduction is bigger. What are itemized deductions? Today, they basically boil down to the, what I call the big three. Your charitable contributions, your home mortgage interest, and then state income or sales taxes. The one thing about that state income or sales taxes is, or, and, and 
also property taxes, state income, sales, property taxes. The one thing about that is it's limited to $10,000 per tax return. So let's take somebody, you know, in the great state of Texas, who maybe they rent their home. And so they have no mortgage interest. Um, they have no property taxes and they have no state income taxes. So maybe they could deduct some state sales taxes, but that's it. And maybe, you know, they don't have that much in the way of charitable contributions. Maybe they're younger and they just don't have that bandwidth yet. So their itemized deductions might be well less than $12,500, $550, I believe is the, 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 the standard deduction now. So that person is going to take the standard deduction. They're just going to deduct from that $50,000. They're going to deduct $12,550. That's going to leave them with $37,450, if my math is right, in terms of taxable income, right? And so what they're going to do is they're going to take out the tax brackets and look, your computer software will do this for you yeah. when you file your tax <laughs> return. You don't have to manually do this. And they're going to say, okay, I have 37,450 of taxable income. I now apply that against the tax brackets. The first tax bracket, if I'm single, basically gets the first $9,950 is subject to a 10% tax rate. And then the rest goes to 12%. So after, you know, I had 34,000 in change of taxable income, the first little under 10,000 is going to be subject to a 10% federal income tax. And the remainder of about 24,000 change could be subject to a 12% tax bracket. Um, if, if my taxable income goes above 40,525, it's then going to spill into the 22% tax bracket. And then if it goes above 86,000, 375, I'm single, it spills into the 24% tax bracket, and so on and so forth. So that's a great question. That's a great point, Justin, you pay. Um, what's going to happen is you're going to pay an, an average rate over all your income, but your income is in these steps, right in that 50,000 example, the 10% step and the 12% step. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully we didn't lose too many people there. We threw out a ton <laughs> of numbers. Feel free to use round numbers um, moving forward if you would like to. I think, um, I believe it's NerdWallet has a uh, effective tax rate calculator too. So if somebody wants to just go punch in their um, the amount they make and a few other items, they can get to almost a, a, an effective tax rate of what, what's got to be taxed overall. And it will break all those different steps down for you. I, I just did this a couple of weeks ago um, and it was really helpful for a visual to do. Um, so there's tons, as you were mentioning, tons of great resources out there to figure all this kind of stuff out. But let's transition now to retirement investment vehicles. Um, there's a couple big buckets here. And the one I hear most often is 401k. Yes. So let's, let's first start with um, two terminologies, 401k and an IRA. Can you break, can you separate the two and tell me the difference between them? Absolutely, Justin. So a 401k is an employer-sponsored retirement plan. So you get a 401k at work, all right? It is associated with your employer. You don't open it up yourself unless, now there's a special 401k called a solo 401k if you're self-employed. And that's actually an, a topic of a lot of interest to me. I'm in the process of writing a book about that particular topic, the solo 401k. But for most of the listeners, a 401k is they go to their job and their job offers a 401k. They may not, they don't have to. Okay. 
but many large employers do offer something called a 401k for some of the more like governmental or nonprofit that might be called a 403b or 457. These are employer sponsored retirement plans. Okay. So that's the 401k for most of the audience. Then there's something called an IRA, an individual retirement account. And that is individual, meaning you yourself open that up, right? There are certain, you know, a handful of cases, there's something called an employer sponsored IRA. It's not too frequent. It does exist. But for everyone, something called a individual retirement account exists. And that's the sort of thing you go to a financial institution and open up. Um, and there are two flavors of that, just like there are two flavors of the uh, 401k. There's something called a Roth IRA and there's something called a traditional IRA. We'll get into that a little bit more. But the big thing about the individual IRA is you open it up yourself through a financial institution and you need to have earned income. W-2 income is the most common example. You have to have earned income in order to contribute in any year to a IRA. Okay. So I have a part-time, I'm a 16 year old, have a part-time job working at my local fast food and I'm making $3,000. I can yes. contribute to an IRA up to $3,000. Absolutely. So I'm not here to give tax advice to any particular individual, right? We're talking about educational information. That's a great example though, Justin, right? That child, 16 years old, gets a W-2 from um, their part-time employer and says they made $3,000 of W-2 wages. That means that kid can go contribute $3,000 for that year to an IRA. Let's build it a little further. What kind of IRA should that hypothetical child contribute to? I'm here to tell you that hypothetical child should probably contribute to something called a Roth IRA, right? And why is that? Well, they can contribute to a traditional IRA in that case. They qualify. They get a tax deduction for that $3,000. Well, the standard deduction is generally greater than that $3,000. So they're not subject to any income tax on that $3,000. They're subject to payroll tax, but not income tax. So why take a tax deduction when you're not paying income tax anyway, hmm. right? That's a great example of, hey, I'm not paying any income tax, but I can contribute to a Roth IRA. Right. So that 16 year old could put the three, could put $3,000 and they could, by the way, get a gift from mom and dad too. That could fund it. Right. It doesn't have to be the 3000 that they got from fast food restaurant. It could be any 3000 that they happen to have. They could actually contribute the 3000 to a Roth IRA. They don't need a tax deduction, just contribute it. Um, and then that 3000 grows tax free potentially for their rest of their lives, depending on how they structure it. And that leads us into well, what's this traditional IRA? What's this Roth IRA? Traditional IRAs in many cases have a tax deduction associated with them, uh, which is great. That's the benefit today. And that's how sort of retirement savings started in the United States in terms of tax advantage accounts. The idea was, well, people don't want to save for tomorrow. People want to spend today. So how do we incentivize them to save for tomorrow? We'll give them a big tax deduction today. Hmm. So you get the, the Snickers, the candy bar of, I get this big tax deduction but look at over there, I set aside a bunch of money for my future elderly self. Isn't that great? I get this benefit today. I'm happy. And then from a policy perspective, the world's happy because 
we've now saved for our future retirement when maybe we're older, we're sicker, where it's harder to work and generate uh, earnings in retirement. Okay, that's fine. Um, but then they flipped it. They said, oh, well, we'll do something else for you. We're going to say, maybe you're smart enough to know, yeah, I should be saving for tomorrow. I should be saving for retirement. I don't need that Snickers bar today. I don't need a tax deduction, but I still want to save for retirement. And I still want some tax advantage. So what are we going to do? We'll give you the Roth 401k or Roth IRA, where you put money in today, you get no tax deduction, but I don't need that that big one-time benefit today. I'm happy for that to grow tax-free, right? So the Roth, no tax deduction today, but it grows tax-free. And when I take it out the right way in retirement, no income tax on that. The traditional, the flip of that, I get my big tax benefit today, my big tax deduction today, but then in the future, when I take it out, it's gonna be subject to ordinary income tax. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, when do you want that benefit? In so many cases, the Roth, in many cases makes a little more sense. Um, but the big thing I think for the audience is start focusing on these retirement accounts, right? I'm not here to say you should be doing all Roth, all traditional, some combination. I'm here to say you should be paying attention to this stuff now. There are resources out there. I like to think I've written some of those resources, uh, but many others have as well. Start thinking about this stuff. Uh, there's no 100% crystal, this is the right answer, this, you know, and everything else is wrong. Not at all. The right answer starts with, I'm, sp I'm paying attention to this stuff, and I'm going to be intentional about how I do my retirement saving. Hmm. Awesome. So that was a mouthful. Um, let me summarize it back to you. And this is how I had to break it down to eventually realize what all the different retirement investment um, accounts were out there. So if you visualize a two by two grid, the columns going across would be your um, 401k and your IRA. 401k employees employer sponsored, so you're setting it up as um, with your with through work, and then IRA individual retirement account, you're setting it up as an individual outside of work, and then and then going down the rows, it could be a traditional or a Roth. Traditional meaning you take a tax break now, but you pay taxes later. Roth meaning you pay taxes now, but you get the tax bracket later. So you can hypothetically have a Roth 401k, a traditional 401k, a Roth IRA, or a traditional IRA, correct? That's a great way of breaking it down, Justin. And I think that sort of transitions us a little bit into what the heck do you invest in these things, right? And by the way, I'm not here to give anyone investment advice, right? Um, that's something I do professionally through my practice. That's not what I do on, on this podcast. But I will say you ought to be attentive to something called the employer match or the company match inside your 401k. So one of the things that companies will sometimes do, not all companies do this, but some companies will say, okay, if you put a certain percentage of your salary inside the 401k every pay period, maybe it's 5%. So you make $100,000 at your W-2 job. Your employer says for the first 5% of your salary you put into your uh, 401k, we will match that 50 cents on the dollar, 100 cents on the dollar, whatever the percentage is. It might be 25 cents on the dollar. Um, generally speaking, you'd be well advised to at least contribute to that amount, right? So in my example, $100,000 W-2 gross salary that person should 
if their employer matches the first 5%, they should contribute at least 5% to the 401k. So they make sure they, they grab all of that employer match, right? Beyond that, there's more decision-making to be had, but boy, it's hard to leave a company match on the table. That's the first thing you ought to be attentive to when you think about these retirement accounts, because there's no investment I or anyone else can offer you uh, that has an instantaneous return, right? An employer match is literally an instantaneous return. I put $5,000 into my 401k this year. My employer matches dollar for dollar, all of that 25%, 50%, you know, 100%, whatever it is, that's an instantaneous return on my money. That's as good as it's going to get in the investment world. So get that, that employer match. That's the first priority in my mind in terms of your uh, retirement account savings. Mm -hmm. Yes, totally agree. Um, and you're almost leaving money on the table if you don't make that match. Sure, it might not be money that you can or want to spend right today, but eventually your 65, 70-year-old self has got to need some money to pay for some things. So picking up that or leaving that match on the table just leaves some money off. And um, you know, back to the $50,000 at a 5% match, um, you know, that's another 2,500 bucks if they're at hundred percent one for one match on that. I mean, you're effectively making 52 and a half thousand dollars now, um, which is incredible. And as you said, instantaneous returns as well. I mean, there's very few investment products that can advertise hundred percent or 50% returns and then guaranteed that, um, right away. That's just incredible. And Justin, the other thing you should be thinking about if you're young is time, right? In theory, we can imagine a future where you become the next big pop star or basketball player. We can, in theory, increase your income to no limit whatsoever, right? We could, in theory, have you make billions of dollars. What we can't do is create another second of time. So you mentioned maybe a $2,500 match, um, if you get that in your 20s, that's worth so much more than if you get that in your 50s, right? So being in your 20s, you have the most time you will ever have. When you're listening to this podcast right now, you have more time to save and grow investment assets for retirement than you will ever have in the rest of your life. So that's why this is so imperative for the younger folks in the audience, right? Saving $2,500 in, you know, when you're in your 20s, could be worth saving 5,000 or 6,000 in your 30s or 10,000 in your 40s. I'm not giving you precise numbers, but the point is time is so powerful in terms of growing assets for your future. It's so imperative to save while you're young. Hmm. Yes. And if people really want a great illustration, there's compound interest calculators that are out there plug in the number that you're investing when you think you're going to retire. And it's nuts how fast some of that grows, like a $2,500 investment at 25. Um, what that looks like 40 years later when you're 65, it's just unbelievable. You do the work for 10, 15 years right now, you could let off the gas at 35, 40 and still, you know, if you're living a modest life, have a good nest egg at, you know, that time come retirement at 65. Yeah, part of what we're trying to do is create a portfolio of assets that grow by themselves while you're not working, right? And the more you build up, the more it's going to grow, and then that growth is going to grow. And that's a big driver of the financial independence movement is this notion of, wait a minute, 
it's great that I work for myself. It's great that I go to work every day and get a paycheck every two weeks. But isn't it even better if I can generate a diverse portfolio of assets that itself grows and then grows on that growth? Um, that's sort of the, the real insight that the financial independence community, I think, has had um, is that, look, the best sort of earnings, the best sort of income is growth that happens and that can be somewhat perpetual, right? No investment has guaranteed returns, right? Or, well, I guess there are some very small guaranteed returns out there. But generally speaking, you take risks by investing and then you put them in tax advantage accounts and the growth is just so powerful. Cool. One more thing on 401k before we move off of that vehicle. Um, something that once again, you're out of college, you're listening to this now, you realize you need to go get your, your 401k set up at work. I think something else important to ask about is vesting. Can you explain what vesting is? Yes. Great point, Justin. And this goes to that employer matching contribution, right? So First thing to know about vesting is it doesn't apply to your contributions, right? So let's go back to that example. You're making $50,000 a year. You put $2,500 into the 401k as your own contribution. That is yours. That is, they sometimes refer to it as 100% vested. That'll never get taken away from you. You could lose it in terms of investment. Your investment could go south, but that isn't subject to vesting. That's yours. What is subject to vesting is that employer matching contribution. And it varies from employer to employer. Some employers just give it to you 100% vested right away. Other employers have different schedules of time where that match slowly becomes yours over some time frame. Maybe it's three years, maybe it's five years, maybe it's seven years, but there's a time frame that you have to stay with the company in order for all of that match to be yours. Five-year graduated uh, vesting is actually very common. So you might have a vesting schedule that looks like something like this. Um, you're 0% vested in the first two years. On your two-year anniversary, roughly speaking, you become maybe 20% vested in the, the, the matching contributions and their earnings. Maybe the third-year anniversary, you become 40% vested. Uh, fourth year anniversary, you become 60% vested. And then on the fifth year anniversary, you become 100% vested. And the idea is they're trying to give you some incentive to stay with that employer for a time, right? They don't want you to come into work, work for a year, make all this matching money, and then leave. And now you take all this matching money away. So this gives you some incentive to stay with one employer. There are some employers that don't have this vesting requirement. So yeah, you could theoretically make one paycheck, get the matching contribution and leave. Um, but yeah, so they want you to have at least some skin in the game in terms of staying with that employer. And so they have some sort of a vesting schedule. I blogged about this in my Understanding 401ks uh, blog post on my blog. Um, but yeah, Justin, that's a great point. It's not something to be all that worried about, meaning... Um, there's no guarantee that you'll stay for the two years, three years, five years, whatever it is it, it requires to get fully vested. But at the same time, that's still out there. And you don't want to leave that on the table on the off chance that you may not be still at that employer. Um, the other thing to consider is the level of the match is usually a relatively modest one. So we talked about maybe it's a 5%, you know, they'll, they'll match up to 5% of your salary. You probably ought to be saving at least 5% of your salary anyway. 
So even if you don't get the match ultimately because you leave that job before, say, two years, three years, whatever it is, it's still probably a good idea to invest in the 401k. You want to look at the investments that are available. You want to look at investment fees. But in many cases these days, I'm finding that 401ks actually have relatively broad, diversified investments with relatively good fee structures. Not always. Um, but anyway, so you want to think long and hard about how much you contribute and should you be contributing to your 401k. It can be a great opportunity for many young people to build up tax advantage savings. Yeah, totally agree. And my employer has a one year vesting. And then after one year, I'm 100% invested, which is great. But as you're at, if I'm hearing you right, even if you your intention isn't to stay for five years, in your example, it still might behoove you to pick up the match, just know that in the back of your head and kind of see what happens um, moving forward. That's right. Uh, and they usually track, you probably can go to your 401k portal and see what uh, is the historic contributions that you've made and the growth on them. And then what are the matching contributions and how much you're vested in that? You should be able to figure that out in your online 401k portal. Um, you know, I, I think you're right. It generally, or yeah, I generally believe it still behooves you in most cases, not individualized advice, but in most cases, I think it behooves you to strongly consider contributing at least to the level of the match and perhaps more. Okay. So then transitioning to the IRA, um, particularly a Roth IRA, um, how the hell do I go about setting that up? I can't go talk to my HR department and, and get that set up and all of a sudden things are going. I, how do I go about opening it up and up, opening up an IRA? So an IRA is pretty easily open these days online through the internet portals of the major financial institutions, right? There are no shortage of financial institutions, right? So these are brokerages, even banks offer IRAs in many cases. Generally speaking, I think IRAs are best as long-term investments. So you might want to look at a financial institution. Um, there are many financial institutions out there and they have internet portals that facilitate setting these things up. Uh, it's not that rigorous a process in terms of setting these things up, uh, but you would want to reach out to a financial institution. There are people who write about, hey, this is my experience at XYZ institution. You could read those and you know, there's no guarantee that any one review is, is right or accurate, but there are sources out there that do review some of these things. Um, but anyway, so you would go to a financial institution to set one of those up. And, and you don't need to endorse any financial in institution in particular, but what are some major names that people could potentially Google and look for? Oh, yeah. So there are plenty of institutions, Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, E-Trade. Um, those are the four that at least initially come to my mind. There are plenty of others. Um, and like I said, there are folks, I'm not here to endorse anyone, but there are folks out there who will give you reviews of, hey, I set up my IRA at this institution. Here's my experience. I like this. I didn't like this. Um, you know, so th this is something that in the internet age is done all the time. And these providers have a lot of experience doing this. If you're in doubt, you can always pick up the phone, right? So they do have 800 numbers or I don't know, maybe they're 888 numbers, uh, but they have numbers you could call, right? So maybe you're in there and you're like, I don't get this in this internet portal pick up the phone, you know, they'll, they'll respond. So yeah, uh, it, it's very doable, but you're right, Justin, 
HR is not going to come and have you set this up. Hmm. Yeah. And you're asking us to do a scary thing. there, picking up the phone. It, did you forget we're 20 somethings? <laughs> um, but, okay. but there are tons um, of tutorials out on, on YouTube. You can go and find eight to 12 minute videos on how to set up an, a Roth IRA and Fidelity. I use Fidelity, really like the user interface. Um, it was super simple. I, I think I set it up in like not even an hour's time and I could fund it and have things up and going in a matter of a week. Um, so if, if you are intimidated by the words, don't be so intimidated, go do some light research, um, watch a couple of YouTube videos. I think there are a ton of resources out there, but people, I guess, can also turn to financial advisors if they don't want to spend the time to learn how to set it up and to manage it on their own. That's right. So, you know, there are professionals, myself included, that advise clients around tax advantage retirement savings, whether that's 401ks, IRAs, those sorts of things. Um, one thing you want to think about if you're young is, okay, maybe I qualify for both a Roth IRA contribution and to contribute to a deductible traditional IRA. I'm not saying everyone in the audience will, and in fact, many won't qualify for both, but maybe you do. Then you want to think about, well, what do I want? Do I want a tax benefit today or do I want a tax benefit tomorrow? Right? Traditional IRAs, I take the deduction today. Um, Roth IRAs, I take, I take no tax deduction today, but I get a big tax benefit in the future because it, it's tax-free when I withdraw it. And I think if you're in a relatively low tax bracket, especially that 10%, the 12% federal tax bracket, which if you're young, you're coming out of college, that's very likely, you might want to strongly think about a Roth IRA for a host, whole host of reasons. One is taking a 10% tax break maybe isn't that great of a benefit because in your, in your future, you might be paying a 22% tax rate, 24%, 32%. And even as an elderly person, you might be paying that. So why do you want a 10% tax deduction today? And then the second thing is you get that tax-free growth for so long. That's a pretty spicy nugget. You know, that's a pretty nice thing to have. So I think if you qualify for both a deductible IRA and traditional IRA, and a Roth IRA, you might want to strongly think about that Roth if you're in a very low tax bracket today. And the, all these accounts that we're talking about are essentially just the pizza box. It's not the actual pizza. We have to go and pick a certain investment to invest in. After that, um, the, these, these accounts are just giving us the tax benefits. How does this differ? Can I, can I buy Apple stock within my Roth IRA you know, as opposed to having to go to Robinhood and, and purchase uh, um, Apple stock through Robinhood? It's certainly possible to have individual stocks in retirement accounts, right? So for your 401k, there's basically an investment menu, right? So your employer is going to give you a menu of, hey, we have these 30 mutual funds. You can invest in your 401k in any one or all of these 30 funds, right? It might be 20 funds, might be 40 funds. Um, so you have limits in terms of they offer you certain funds. That's what you can invest in. Traditional IRA or Roth IRA, it's basically whatever the financial institution is going to let you invest in, right? So if you're in, on the Vanguard platform, they have their investments, right? And it's usually going to be mutual funds or ETFs. But yes, it is theoretically possible to buy an individual equity within a 401k if that's offered, Roth IRA, traditional IRA. Um, 
you, yeah, you invest through in an IRA case through the, the brokerage of that financial institution. Hmm. And pros and cons of investing through a Roth IRA versus just setting up a brokerage account. Like I said, a Robinhood is, is very common in, yep. in my demographic and, and going that direction, at least that direction, I can access my money right away penalty free. What would be your counter argument to that if, if I were yeah. to tell you that? So it depends on your financial objectives. And I think for most young folks, retirement, whatever you, you want to style it as an early retirement, a late retirement, retirement's a very important uh, objective for most people, right? And so if you're, if, if you're thinking about retirement savings, the Roth IRA is so nice because it's tax-free growth, right? So if you own that stock, bond, mutual fund inside a taxable brokerage account, then what happens is every year the brokerage gives you a 1099 DIV that says, hey, this thing paid dividends this year. We're reporting that to you and the IRS. You got to pay tax on those dividends, right? Inside a Roth IRA, you never get a 1099 DIV, right? Yeah. The dividends get paid and there's no tax on that, right? It's just inside a Roth IRA, no tax. Second thing is, well, what, what happens when you go to sell that account, right? So you buy XYZ mutual fund in a Roth IRA and you hold it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever it is. And then you sell it at a big gain. There's no tax on that either. Right now, if you take the money out and you're not 59 and a half years old, maybe there's some tax on it. But if you just keep it in the Roth IRA, you can trigger that gain, sell it, no tax. What if you own that inside a, a taxable brokerage account? You have to pay tax on that gain. Right. So that's part of the reason why holding assets in Roth IRAs is better in many cases than holding them inside a taxable brokerage account. But it also depends on your objectives. Right. So if your objective is retirement saving, those sorts of things, Roth IRA is the way, you know, is, is in many cases the way to go. But what if you're thinking about, you know, in five years from now, I'm going to start a business or I want a down payment for a home. Um, well, guess what? A Roth IRA, unless you're elderly, is probably a terrible way to save for, I'm going to open up my own business in three years, or I'm going to buy a home in the next 18 months, right? Because you want tax free, you, you want uh, penalty free access to that money at any time. If you're doing something like I'm opening my own business, I'm buying a car, I'm buying a home, these sorts of things. So it, it depends, Justin, on your financial objective for that particular holding, right? Um, so, you know, I love the Roth IRA. I've written about it very favorably, but it depends on what you're saving and investing for. Let's go back to the very beginning and, and you talking about FI or financial independence. Why is financial independence so important to you? It's important to me because it gives me options, right? So, in my life, it's not necessarily about, sometimes, you know, there's this distinction between FI or financial independence versus FIRE, financial independence, retire early. And for me, it's not about, hey, I want to retire by age certain, right? It's more about options, right? So the more financially independent I am, the more options I have in terms of what I do in my future, whether that's professional pursuits, charitable contributions, where I live you know, my priorities in life. So for me, what the financial independence does is it facilitates better outcomes and more options in my future. The other thing it does is we've talked about a lot of tactics and tactics are great, you know, and, and you know, it's really cool to learn about 
solo 401ks and Roth IRAs and 401ks and employer matches. That's great. But what FIRE or FI does is it gives you sort of the house, right? Those things are like the granite countertops and the dual vanity and the lighting fixtures, right? You go to a construction site and that's just laid out in different places. Well, that's almost worthless, right? Nobody can live inside that. Fire gives you that sort of uh, framework of making all that cool stuff into a house, right? Uh, because it gives you goals and objectives for that. And I think that's sort of the difference between financial literacy and fire fire right financial literacy is knowing about tactics but not knowing about how those tactics then fold into goals and outcomes and i think that's what fi does better than say financial literacy not that financial literacy is not important but i i for me having that sort of overarching framework of fire fire is very helpful i couldn't agree more um whenever i heard you speak on that it's really put a light bulb in my head too, because I realized Phi did the exact same thing for me. It almost gave purpose behind all of these things that I felt like kind of arbitrary chores that I was doing at the certain time without like having an, an outcome. And, and Phi really put an outcome to me. And, and as you mentioned, gave me options and, and really just like opened up or gave purpose behind why I was doing all of this. I mean, I um, am a chronic frugal saver. Like it's just the, the background I was born into and I have like a really scarce mind scarcity mindset around money. And it always kind of led to save, 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 save. Um, five for me is allowing me to get to an objective to allow other, other important factors to climb the ladder. So once I, I, I feel secure, um, and, and I get to a certain place now, how much money I make or how much money I save can, can get pushed down the ladder and certain things like what brings me joy and happiness can, can be pushed up. Um, and I don't know, I just, like I said, I heard you and I, I um, listened to that and I, I just thought it was super impactful. That's great, Justin. I appreciate you saying that. One of the paradoxes of FI is the better you get at it, the less important all these financial tactics become, right? Because if you're, you know, you're on that road to FI and you just graduated college and you're starting at say zero or even student loan debt, um, it really matters, right? Especially in terms of giving you priorities. But if you then build up a nice little nest egg and you, and you do it tax efficient and you control your investment fees and you do it pursuing a goal, well, in 10 years, you're going to be in a much better place. And then optimizing that last little piece of it really becomes a lot less impactful. So it's sort of the more we focus on it up front, the less we have to focus on it um, later. And I think that's one of the nice things about someone in their 20s is this is such an impactful time. Um, like I said, you can't, you can potentially create more income, but you can't create more time. And so that's where for this audience in particular, FI, I think it's very impactful. Agreed. Well, Sean, it's been a pleasure. Um, if people want to read your blog, as you mentioned many times, it's a lot of great information out there. You can find it at fitaxguy.com. That is fifinancialindependencetaxguy.com. And then if they're interested in your, your services as well, malaneyfinancial.com. That will be in the show notes. Um, I did find it interesting. You're a fee-only advisor. Um, why did you decide to go that direction? Yeah, so Justin, um, 
what I try to do in my practice is provide advice to clients, right? So I believe the advice piece of it is the uh, most logical um, outcome for clients. So what I try to do is give advice and fee only sort of makes sense in that context, right? So I don't sell investment products or insurance products or anything like that. And because of that, I think the fee only model makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Because in other scenarios, an advisor might be getting a kickback or commission or something based on the investment product that they're selling. Well, so there are different fee models out there. And um, there could be, you know, and this goes into the industry a little bit, but theoretically there could be say like a commission on a product that an advisor sells. And so my understanding of the rules is that that advisor would not be able to claim that he or she was fee only, right? So in my model, it's an hourly planning fee, right? So I tally up my time and I bill based on an hourly model for financial planning advice. Uh, but my understanding of the rules, and, and because I don't have any commissions, I don't really even know these rules that well. Uh, but essentially, my understanding is if, you know, say I, as part of my uh, business, were to sell an insurance product that I got a commission on, then I'm not at that point fee only. Sean, my final question for you, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Yeah, so I would go back to um, faith and the humanities, right? So we've talked a lot about tactics and you know I love tactics. I work professionally in the, in the tactical world in terms of how to structure financial affairs. But I think we need to think about purpose of living. I'm a Catholic and my faith is very important to me. I think for those who are graduating college, it's time to spend some time with your faith and with the purpose of life, like it's great that we achieve careers, that we achieve, you know, financial outcomes. Um, but why are we on this earth? Where does, uh, you know, what role does our faith play in that? Nobody's on their deathbed thinking, you know, I didn't save enough in my HSA, right? That just doesn't happen. Um, but what you do think about is your purpose. And why was why are you here? Um, there's actually a YouTube channel with some uh, vignettes that are really good on this called the School of Life. So if you're looking for the uh, not the 16 week course version, but more of the five minute video version, there are some great videos on there. But yeah, so I would teach a course, you know, in my case around my Catholic faith. Um, yeah, and thinking about purpose and why are we here. That's really great. Actually, my freshman year seminar was the pursuit of happiness. It sounds very similar to what you would you would structure as a class, and I found it really impactful for starting my, my college journey. Um, it gave me a little bit broader thinking of of what I want to do and and kind of what what really this life means to me. So I, I really really like that, Sean. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you volunteering your time and, and coming on the podcast. Justin, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed this conversation. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.